In this episode, I'm talking about neurotheology with Brian Spoon, who's a pastor, chaplain, and neuroscience YouTuber who runs the channel Neurotheology. Now, neurotheology is the branch of neuroscience that seeks to understand the relationship between the human brain and religion. I loved having this conversation with Brian because even though we differ on our religious views, I'm an atheist and he's a Christian pastor, we had a fruitful and amicable discussion about neuroscience, mindfulness, spirituality, and the many approaches to living a good and satisfying life. Brian Spoon is a board-certified chaplain through the Association of Professional Chaplains. He is also an ordained priest within the Episcopal Church, currently serving with his wife Elizabeth in Mexico City. After serving as a chaplain in three level one trauma hospital centers, he is now currently a doctoral candidate in practical theology at the University of Aberdeen's Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability. He is the author of Neuroscience and the Fruit of the Spirit, host of the website spiritualneuroscience.com, which focuses on the correlation of neuroscience with spirituality from scholarly research and diverse faith backgrounds, as well as a host of the website christianneuroscience.com, which features top-rated and diverse Christian neuroscience resources. He is a strong and vocal advocate that amid our spiritual differences, we all have much to learn and share with one another. Now, without further ado, my interview with Brian Spoon. Okay, so I am here with uh, Brian Spoon, and uh, I want to first, uh, I will have read your bio for the audience, but maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to what you you study, both um, on kind of the neuroscience side as well as in being a chaplain. Um, well, you had just interviewed uh, Dr. Andrew Newberg, and actually one of his books was one of my entry points into this genre it was uh, how God changes your brain. Uh, he's been a really big inspiration for me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Anglican priest and to all the viewers, uh, there's going to be no proselytizing <laughs> whatsoever. I'm a board certified chaplain and uh, great respect for all different spiritualities, uh, uh, religions. So uh, just know I'm, I'm coming from that perspective, but uh, Dr. Newberg also looking for commonalities, uh, things that, you know, as, as one human race that, you know, love and unity, he talked about uh, the intensity of experiences, surrender, you know, these kind of things. I think uh, a lot of what we're seeing from neuroscience that, that a lot of what's I think best in spirituality and religion is something that's very universal to all of us. Even if we do disagree on some very large and, and essential points that, you know, I, I really feel like, you know, where he's kind of coming from. So that's kind of how to some degree I got into it, but love seeing that uh, video and love what he's doing. Oh yeah, that's great. I, I love, I, that's really how I got introduced to this area as well. And he's just a really interesting guy, really interesting thinker. So uh, it's a great point of overlap. Um, so I have to admit, I've been so focused on your YouTube channel, which for everybody in the audience is uh, neurotheology. And I will have linked to that below. Um, but I admit, I haven't read your book. Um, so I, I believe it's called Neuroscience and the Fruit of the Spirit. And I was wondering if you could kind of maybe describe some of the central ideas of that book and, and what that phrase for people unfamiliar with it, what, what fruit of the spirit means. Yeah, so within Christianity, uh, uh, Paul, a lot of the letters of the New Testament are written by Paul. And in the letter of, of Galatians uh, chapter five, he talks about 
the fruit of the spirit being love and joy and peace. Um, but there are nine of them, but I, I concentrate on the fruit of the spirit. And there's, I think a lot of overlap of the fruit of the spirit within other traditions as well. Um, but specifically Jesus says, you will know them by their fruit. And he has a number of sayings that talk about being fruitful, um, that he's the vine and we are to bear fruit. Um, the Episcopal Church in the United States just did a large um, survey asking what non-Christians thought of Christians and some of the highest responses were judgmental, um, hypocritical, and that being unfortunate in an area of growth, I think, uh, you know, especially for our community to um, see that when we, when we look at the neuroscience of when we practice love and joy and peace. So what I did is I, you know, when I read Newberg, it was probably about 11 years or so ago, uh, not long after that book I mentioned came out. Um, I started diving into all sorts of books and reading as much as I could and um, wanting to draw into uh, just more knowledge of that and being a hospital chaplain, um, level one trauma centers, uh, a lot of a lot of my time was as a pediatric chaplain. Um, so seeing like transgenerational trauma, mm. uh, prejudice, um, just the horrors of, you know, gun violence and you know, I just could go on and on. But anyway, so, and then there's also this whole realm of the social determinants of healthcare and what's actually being able to, you know, be offered care to in a hospital is actually very, it's like 10 to 20% at most of the entirety of what could be modified. Those would be the social determinants like behavioral or, you know, all of these different mm. things where being able to write a book and say, you know, if we practice these things, we're going to be healthier, um, being able to approach one another. So the book is very Christian. However, it also draws in, um, you know, like the book of joy with uh, the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu reflecting mm -hmm. on that and, and a lot of other resources. Um, I think as a, as a chaplain that, um, you know, I've learned so much from so many different people. And I feel like as Christians, we can, uh, we can adopt a lot of what also inspires our own faith as, as Christians. So it's a book that's very Christian, but at the same time, I, I would say that the fruit of the spirit are, are largely universal, um, I think, to humanity. Uh, and that there's you know, something about them that most of us try to practice. Um, but I think, I think central to my argument is that you know, as, as people of faith, that we have so much to learn from one another and that I think getting along and Jesus also saying, you know, loving our neighbors, the example, of the good Samaritan, you know, that we are really called to, to love one another, you know, even amidst our differences. So it's a book that's very Christian, but at the same time, it's, it's drawing upon a lot of other resources to give Christians, I think more background into experiencing the riches that what neuroscience is teaching us about uh, love and joy and, and, it, and there's so much coming out and it's very inspiring and it's almost like every day there's something new so um, that's that's kind of in a nutshell um, I, I love that idea I'm, I mean as a, a non-christian and non-religious person I I really appreciate that mindset of looking at you know within your own tradition with the the best of what is there and then also looking at at other traditions and then reaching out to, uh, to modern science. And uh, it just, I, I love that approach. I think we could all benefit from taking a little bit of that mindset for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but 
now I, I want to get into, I, I asked um, Dr. Newberg this question as well, and um, I want to see how you approach it. So how do you define spirituality and how would you differentiate it or not from religiousness or religion? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Um, I thought his answer was actually well said, in part, you know, drawing it back to whomever is defining it. It's, um, but there, there are some, I think, things that kind of anchor spirituality as well as religion, you know, religion being more of a community focus, doctrines, uh, agreed upon practices, ritual, uh, liturgies, um, you know, you can get into the the etymology of the word religion as well and being bound to some degree um, or rebound. But then spirituality, I would say, my own personal perspective would be more of like a broad definition is that I would think it would be really a universal that we're all spiritual, that the spirit is something that kind of defines our person, someone call it a soul or self, um, some kind of unifying aspect of ourselves. And within the literature, or just within my perspective, it would be something along the lines of, you know, how we connect to the moment, to ourselves, to others, um, to the sacred, uh, to nature. Um, you know, th those are some, uh, some aspects of it, but it's really very personal, but I, I, I would definitely be of the perspective of more of a broad, uh, like a broad picture. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So within that, um, what do you think about, uh, like, a, it sounds like that would be open to a kind of, um, secular spirituality, uh, if that term is not an oxymoron, um, that kind of, for me, that would mean not invoking anything supernatural, which I suppose would, we might um, disagree on what, what constitutes supernatural, but um, do you see room for that kind of uh, non-religious, non, non uh, I suppose the best term is just secular spirituality? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these are some of the discussions that are happening within the Association of Professional Chaplains. Um, and I just, I think just happening in general, um, that there's, that there's disagreement, but I think having a secular spirituality is, is something that more people are finding. Uh, he mentioned, uh, Dr. Newberg, that there are a growing number of, you know, spiritual, but not religious. Um, there are a number of books, um, Oxford has, a, a dictionary of psychology of spirituality. And so trying to define a little bit more what, what we're talking about, what, uh, but absolutely, I think, I think there's room for spirituality, how, however we understand it. I mean, even if it's coming from believing that we're, that we're material and that we're nothing more than our, our brains, that we still have a, we understand ourselves, most of us, as a unified self. And that self has, you know, some kind of aspects to it that most people, many people would define as our spirit. And that spirit doesn't necessarily have to be metaphysical. I would define it as metaphysical. And um, so it's, I, I think being, being a chaplain, being someone that is respectful of differences, you being able to communicate and, and share what our experiences are to grow with one another. So that is absolutely room, absolutely. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess from, from my perspective, it, uh, I guess the word spirituality for me, refers to 
I guess I would call it like this category of experiences that is available to hum humans and um, I suppose possibly other animals, but um, but definitely to humans where uh, some of the the things that you mentioned kind of a or, or some of the things I suppose that that Dr. Newberg mentioned like um, feelings of of unity with with whether it's God or the universe um, and these I mean I think it could even it's so as I'm trying to define it now, I'm, I'm running up against that. Well, how, how other people define it is going to uh, affect the way I think about it. But, um, but yeah, I, I see it as sort of a, a class of experiences that are outside of the normal realm of experiences um, and which bring us into, um, I think, probably a more positive mindset, both uh, about ourselves and then how we treat others. Um, and I think that's that's too broad to really uh, be a great definition, but um, that's sort of where I where I start with those things. Sure. No, I mean, if it if it works for you and it's bringing more meaning and purpose um, and obviously through your videos and how you connect and want to share different perspectives, I, um, I I appreciate where you're coming from with that. And... Yeah, well, thank you. And I and as you as well. And I this was something I, I hadn't planned on asking you, but it just occurred to me. Um, what is your thinking about the current research into like psychedelic drugs, like um, psilocybin and LSD and these kinds of um, sort of life-changing experiences that some people are having in whether it's treating depression or something along those lines. Um, how does, how do you view that personally uh, it, through the lens of spirituality? Um, I mean, it's, it can be a bit of a controversial subject for a number of people. Um, I know Johns Hopkins uh, has a research center and as I've researched more on neuroscience and spirituality and faith, there, there are a growing number of articles on it. So I, I think it's to some degree fairly new for a lot of people. Um, some of the research coming out of Johns Hopkins that there's um, some very strong evidence that it has, has been very helpful uh, for some, but you know, it, it is um, to something to be controversial and that um, there are certain prejudices. And I, I don't know if I could offer a complete answer having, it's not my specialty, but I, I know it's something that's very much on the forefront of uh, a lot of healthcare and science for some research centers and, and some, and some people And that it's fascinating. I think there, there, there are things about it that are very fascinating, but it does come with some controversy and some, some questions and, you know, and I think it, it's, I would say it's an area to tread, tread a bit lightly. So, um, but I don't think I would be expert enough other than knowing that it's something that a lot of people are, are questioning and that there is some evidence that shows that as, as a therapy that it, it has shown to be very effective, but um, not being a complete expert, um, I wouldn't want to put my foot in my mouth. So uh, yeah. that'll. Fair enough. Fair enough. No, that's great. Um, all right. Well, Let's uh, let's move on to some some topics within neurotheology. Some of the things you've talked about on your channel, I think that you um, you give you have such a good ability of giving an, a nice overview of what these. A lot of your videos are focused on individual brain regions, and you, you do a good job of explaining what kind of the overall function of those brain regions are, and then how they're involved or may be involved in spiritual experiences. Um, yeah. And I love that. And I, I wondered if um, we could take maybe some of these lessons that you've outlined in your videos and just sort of 
give them to the audience. I think they're so valuable. Um, so in one video, you, I, I can't remember exactly which one it is, but um, you tell this parable of the, the two wolves. Um, and I think it's a Cherokee story, a Cherokee two wolf mm -hmm. story. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's kind of about how our brains can change for the better or worse. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could, it could tell that story or, or explain you know, what the meaning is to you. Yeah, so it's a yeah, Cherokee uh, Native American uh, story. Um, basically, there's an elder who's asked by a young person saying, you know, I, I feel like there are these two sides of myself. There's this angry, hungry, kind of ravenous wolf inside. And then there's this kind of loving, kind wolf inside. And this young person says to the elder, like, you know, which one am I or, you know, who's going to win? And the elder says, well, it depends on the one you feed. So taking that to a neuroscience perspective, looking at it from, you know, uh, doing the, uh, you know, the power of habit or James Clear with his atomic habits, or, I mean, there, there's reams of, you know, research papers coming out about, you know, how we, how we engage our lives, what we do consistently over time, even writings of the ancients, like Aristotle talks about these things that, you know, what we cons consistently do largely becomes who we are um, so it depends on, you know, which wolf we're feeding. So knowing that there is a bit of a battle in us, you know, in, in spirituality, I think, you know, each one of us is a person, like we're a, we're a self, so we're going to be selfish, but then we live in community. So we're always thinking about ourselves in community. So there's always, I think, going to be that tension that is, that is a challenge, just an existential challenge, but how do we live in a way that our self can incorporate in, and be more loving thinking about the golden rule or forgiving this kind of thing. But um, no, I think it's, I think it's a brilliant uh, parable, brilliant uh, story. And one that really, it's just so true that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so like, what would you say is the, the way that we could apply that lesson in our lives to, to change our brains for the better? I mean, what are the, some of the, the practices that might allow us to feed that the good wolf rather than the, the bad one? Um, well, just within like, say my own, my own faith tradition of Christianity, um, thinking about a word origin, uh, John three sixteen is one of the most probably well-known Bible verses amongst Christians, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. Whatever. Um, not whatever, but don't want to keep <laughs> on going with a lot of extra scripture for people that aren't necessarily Christian, but within, within, uh, Christianity, within the Koine Greek uh, the particular word used um, for believe in him is is ice. It's a pistuum in ice. Uh, and ice is it's a preposition. It means in, but it also means into, for the purpose of, or to. Uh, which, going back to that analogy of the wolves, you know, if our faith is to believe into or for the purpose of, um, it's a totally different thing than say if I were to believe in being healthy, I can believe in being healthy, but from personal experience, I know that's very different from actually being healthy or <laughs> living like into patterns of healthiness. So our faith or who we are, and aside from being Christian, um, I think how we believe, whatever our spirituality is, how we engage with the world, what we're drawn to, um, 
that is, you know, feeding those wolves that, you know, as we live out our faith, uh, our faith is embodied, um, it's enacted, it is very much, uh, it's alive, it's a living, we are a living uh, being in terms of our faith. And sometimes it gets, I think, relegated to a mental acceptance or, you know, I believe in, and that if we're going to believe, I think it should be personally more, how do I be a healthier person? Because if I just believe in being healthy, it's not going to help me or anybody else. So uh, that's just kind of, I think, the take I would, um, from my personal experience of my own health habits that have not necessarily led to being a more healthy person. <laughs> All right. Well, that, that's fair. Um, <laughs> All right. So, so I, I love that story. And um, I, you have a really nice way with words. And in this one video, uh, I, again, I'm sorry, I can't remember the, the name of it, but um, I can look it up and link it. Um, so, oh, it's a video on goodness, I, I think, actually. And you say, I'm just going to quote you a little bit here. And you say, at the core of goodness is a zeal for the truth that is active and correcting. Unless we correct for falsehood and ignorance, then we will, contribu we will contribute to the brokenness of the world. So I love that. I, I think that's a curious and, and really, um, I, I like that link between truth and goodness. And I was wondering if you could talk about how you see that, that connection between truth and goodness, and maybe in this context or broader context, but however you wanna take that. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one way uh, goodness has been seen by some of the interpreters of, of that particular fruit of the spirit within Christianity. Um, I would say absolutely that, you know, the, the closer we draw toward truth, um, the, the more goodness there is. Um, you know, and even within Christianity, there's been thinking of Galileo that, you know, seeing, seeing the world as a larger place than what we knew before and that we continually make um, more and more discoveries about how beautiful and wondrous this world is we live in that um, being able to incorporate that but it does it holds intention some of our you know our traditions or understandings and it can be it can be very challenging in that sense um, for many of us that are you know coming from a particular faith background uh, but I think largely that my my understanding of ultimate reality is that it must be truth. And that if ultimate reality is truth, uh, some of us will, will call that God, that that ultimate reality, many of us would also call it love. And that if we can find love and, and truth in a sense of ultimate reality, the, the closer we can get to that, that truth and love, I think it's gonna draw us more and more together, even as we disagree on some enormously important points. But I, I really feel like, that correcting sense of, um, you know, not living in hypocrisy, uh, you know, being truth tellers, that regardless of whatever the ultimate truth is, that no matter what we disagree on the ultimate truth is, that goodness of, of loving people that we're very different from, you know, of, of drawing close to people, of not being hypocritical, of, of holding ourselves accountable to the truth, that it's going to be healthier for each one of us. So there's that entire aspect that you, I, I feel like we don't even necessarily have to approach some of the unknowables or mm. the things that some of us just completely disagree on. Uh, but there's this, 
enormous realm that I think that we're seeing played out in culture and politics and so many other things right now that um, it's been a real challenge and that I, I, th I think that goodness, if we can if we can humble ourselves and surrender more of some of the things that Dr. Newberger talking talking about, that if we can find that humility or surrender, uh, that it's going to, I think, open us up in a way uh, to have more goodness. Mm. Yes, yeah, and I, I it's a couple different points there. I mean, I think your point about connecting where we can connect. You know, we'll disagree about maybe fundamental things and and other trivial things, but. Um, if if we can connect and we can collaborate, you know, if a, a priest can speak to an atheist and we can come up with a, yeah. a good collaboration here, then why not do it? Why not um, engage in that? That seems so important. Um, and then the other thing that came to mind for me with that was the importance of honesty. You know, I think it, it's it's so important. I think you were sort of expressing this, that that we just we may not even know the answer to these things, but if, if we're honest about what we believe and why we believe it, it can, it can do so much good in the world. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that I, I, um, I love that point. Um, so now I, I kind of want to move on to a, something that seems to maybe in your more recent videos, it seems to be a theme that's popping up a little bit more. Um, but uh, in, in any case, in one of your videos on the uh, the vagus nerve and vagal tone, um, you explain that that the vagus nerve has a lot to do with our kind of our mental health and well being. And I was wondering if uh, if you could describe just what that nerve is and why it's so important, or if if not that specific point, maybe we could just discuss why why the feelings from the body are so important in suffering, well-being, and, and spirituality in general. Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I, I think it's so important for, for all of us to connect more to our bodies. Um, and that the 10th the cranial nerve, uh, it, has, it comes from the brain stem down through the body, connecting to our organs. So it's, it's something that can be largely out of our conscious awareness. Uh, how our organs connect to our emotions. And I, I think that's a big point that I and a, many, many others uh, like Bessel van der Kolk or uh, Body Keeps the Score or, um, you know, there's others out there uh, that are, Babette Rothschild is uh, one name. She's uh, doing excellent work in this uh, genre. Um, and coming from a very secular place that I think um, many different therapists can draw from that, uh, you know, if we can, I think at first, um, kind of understand our bodies more. One of the things I was explaining in the video, having that habit of awareness that when our heart starts to beat faster, that can be a sign that our, we have an amygdala hijack that some people will be aware of that, you know, our, our fight or flight response of stress that when we get, when we get stressed, some, something happens in our body. And if we're conscious of what's happening, then we can kind of cue ourselves. You know, I talk about habit loops and this kind of thing that being more conscious of our body, we can be more conscious of what has been unconscious. So stimulating the vagus nerve, there are different ways to do it, a number of different ways. But one that I mentioned in the video is diaphragmatic breathing. If we can breathe deeply, we, we're all in those conversations where someone says something that might raise the stress level or 
we're watching television, something might raise the stress level. If we have that, if we have that awareness of, okay, I'm stressed out. I can feel my heart racing. You know, my, my hands are clenching my, maybe my jaw. Um, if we can be more aware of these things and that then a habit loop grows, we know it cues us, but if we can start breathing some diaphragmatic breathing, what that does, it stimulates the vagus nerve, which are our organs actually, not only does the brain communicate with the body, but especially through the vagus nerve that our organs are communicating to our brain. Uh, so when we're at peace and in rest, they, um, you know, we talk about our, our, our system of rest, that, that the belly, that a lot of those nerves are actually, you know, coming and, and kind of telling the mind, but also when we breathe diaphragmatically, it's telling the brain basically just calm down. And that gives us more access to our prefrontal cortex. Um, so one thing that I recommend is when we feel those things, do some deep breathing, kind of calm down. And then there's some other exercises. Um, I think you mentioned a bit with Dr. Newberg about you know meditation and there's certain aspects of meditation that are fairly universal. I would say that you know having a third person perspective of our first person experience is one way of defining how we uh, how we can view mindfulness. And the more we grow in that, the the things that are unconscious we can be more conscious of. And that ventral vagal, the, the vagus nerve having um, you know two branches, the ventral is more of our you know rest, peace, calm. And then the dorsal is the back uh, where that would be much more, if we're so stressed, we go into um, just a complete freeze. So when that's being activated, so it's a bit of neuroscience, but it's a neuroscience channel. Uh, so people are gonna know these or wanna know more about them, uh, but being able to activate uh, through, through some belly breathing, through calming down, um, accessing our prefrontal cortex. And then the more mindful we are, a lot more of our inhi inhibitory uh, aspects of our prefrontal cortex can kind of draw down some of the limbic systems, you know, stress responses. And we can also start thinking more abstractly about like, who, who am I and who am I in relation to others rather than being these um, kind of unconscious habits. But hopefully that wasn't too tangential, but I think the vagus nerve is very fascinating. Um, something that I think within several years, I'd, I'd love to see as part of a kind of a, a vocabulary that everyone would be able to say, oh, I, I just need to kind of set my ventral vagal back in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not, yeah, that, yeah, that, no, I, I don't think that got too tangential at all. Um, and I will link to that video. You, you go through a number of different techniques. Um, so people should definitely check that out. Um, but, uh, so you've touched on this a couple of times, and this is something we talked about a little bit before we started recording, but um, a lot of your videos seem to point to or, or indicate the problem of deepening political divisions between the left and right. Um, and I'm, that's something I'm very concerned about as well. And it's, mm -hmm. it's sort of a, a motivation for this channel in, in some ways, um, kind of indirectly, but mm -hmm. I'm wondering how, how you see that division and how you think that well, maybe spirituality or an understanding of neuroscience can help us to heal or, or lessen those divisions. Oh, or yeah, if, no, I, I they can. <laughs> no, I, I very much, I believe so. Um, yeah, I, I loved a lot of what I've read from Brene Brown. Um, she talks a bit about a number of us living in 
ideological bunkers where we have an affiliation with you know people that have a common enemy that connection has has grown we're more and more disconnection disconnected in our connectedness and it's a real problem i mean it's a real i didn't include this in my bio but i i worked for about 10 years in in u.s politics um i won't say which party i work for but i i don't affiliate with either party anymore i i hope the very best for them and i hope for you know both sides and and smaller political parties uh, my wife and i are living in uh, mexico now i mean there's it's it's a little bit more diverse than some of the uh, political system here um but really uh you know having worked 10 years in u.s politics i was a campaign manager a congressional campaign manager and you know i seeing seeing that division just the inability to work together on almost anything it was it was, it was just heartbreaking. So I think coming from that place of seeing uh, so much division um, and wanting to be a part of a solution, and I, you know, I, I think I was drawn to neuroscience, but also to chaplaincy where you know, each, each person has their individual spirituality, sense of self, uh, sense of meaning and purpose, being able to draw out uh, where there's a, a place of healing, a place of connection and to me, that was deeply healing, even amongst the real horrors of hospital trauma, you know, that still being able to connect, finding common ground, even amongst the differences that, and that the neuroscience, especially, I think in terms of how we understand ourselves, um, that, um, you know, in, in social neuroscience is a whole area that's really kind of growing the last, you know, 10, 20 years, um, that, um, I probably pronounced his name, uh, Cassiopo, um, mm -hmm. uh, he and his wife, they uh, doing a lot of really interesting work, partly on like loneliness, that people, uh, loneliness is killing people. I mean, it's just, but also I think the divisions, it's just, it, in the United States, I think it's to some degree destroying us um, and seeing things through a neuroscience lens that if you, if you look at the world that uh, quantum mechanics and so much of, so much of what they're discovering, we're all connected one of the metaphors I talk about is uh, uh, the butterfly effect that all of us have uh, an infinite impact on everything. And that back in the 60s, a meteorologist was doing studies and found that if you changed a simulation of weather patterns, even like infinitely small and as if like a butterfly was beating its wings in Brazil, it's going to cause hurricanes in China. It's you know, that, so that's the metaphor that each one of us has this infinitely impactful self that that's changing everything, but that we all are interconnected and that each one of us even know how insignificant we are, we are connected. So there's, there's the neuroscience or just science that shows that we are connected and how we do connect, but then so, or, or look at like our 3 billion base pairs of genes and we're 99.9% the same. Yet there's so much, I mean, so you can just spew off science galore, just saying we are so similar, even our theological differences, you know, most people believe in love and forgiveness and, you know, what these theological or spiritual concepts mean for us. If you look at what those do, and I thought it was brilliant that you take the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu coming together to write a book that, you know, if we practice these things, regardless of how we disagree, and they also, uh, Richard Davidson, um, out of uh, uh, Wisconsin Madison, he uh, he's brilliant and he's a Buddhist. So I mean, and he's saying so much that I think can draw us together as well. That 
there's so much to learn. And I find it so fascinating that if we define ourselves, I think, as separate, then what happens is these dualities or however you want to call them, dichotomies or these separations. But there's so much neuroscience that shows that no matter how separate we, we define ourselves, that we are still intimately entwined. And that even in our divisions, we're still entwined in our divisions. So my hope is that we can draw more together through neuroscience. And that is, I think that is like a fundamental piece of, I think, my own healing, having worked in politics to draw, I think, what we can to bring us more together. Because I think now more than ever, um, it's, I mean, it, I think our future, not I think our future depends on it. It's just, it's really an existential, and, and it's only getting worse. I mean, in, in some in some areas, there's really vocal people, like I mentioned Brene Brown and others, um, but, you know, that's in some ways has only gotten worse since I was working. And so my my hope, my prayer, my my deepest desire is that, you know, with neuroscience, with our differences, we can learn from one another. And I really think the neuroscience can draw us more together and show that, you know, that genetically we're, we're so similar and that that has to at least prompt the question, you know, why? And if we're that similar, how can we not at least to some degree get along? And, and for my fellow Christians and myself included, you know, Jesus had mentioned the good Samaritan and Samaritans in his day were deeply hated and deep, deeply mm -hmm. divided. And, and if, you know, so I, I, I really feel like, um, how can I be a better person by learning about these things? Um, be less judgmental. And so it's, but yeah, neuroscience, I think neuroscience for me, uh, it was so enlightening and I, and I feel like, and there's just so much more. So anyway, that's, yeah. that's probably all. Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting. You say that because about a year ago or some time ago, I, earlier in the channel's history, I made some videos about uh, political psychology, political divisions. And, um, and I had, it had the same effect on me learning about just the effect that being a member of a political party can bias the way that you process information about a given issue or policy. Um, it, I did the same thing. I dropped my affiliation with the party that mm. I won't mention which one it was. Um, but uh, yeah, same thing. I mean, I've I've been thinking about this issue for a long time, uh, or for for a few years at least, and um, and I see the problems you're talking about, and and I agree. I think that as we see how similar we are, it does prompt that question of why are we why are we so divided on these particular points? I mean, why, you know, why does the left see an issue this way and the right sees it this way? And I think we, we forget that we, we need to think about what, what people value and what they actually want and why they're going for a certain, um, certain method of going there. And maybe we're really trying to go to the same place, but we're just doing it in different ways. And I guess that I, I really appreciate that point about just the, the unity of us of us all, and um, and it also made me think of there's this term that gets thrown around in the kind of the the prefrontal cortex uh, researchers and the the cognitive control executive function people they they have this idea of um, the unity and diversity of uh, cognitive control of these like executive functions, um, and it's a little bit of an abstract concept. It's 
it's kind of this idea that there's there's all these different seemingly uh, different functions that the prefrontal cortex um, is involved with or, or that fall under the umbrella of executive functions like inhibiting our impulses or working memory and they seem different but they all have some kind of unity to them and so i was just as you were speaking i just that phrase kept coming into my head like unity and diversity or unity among diversity maybe um is, sure, I, I wonder yeah. if that's a theme for our conversation here yeah and i absolutely i mean i be a priest and you coming from you know more of an atheist side that you know that i and i don't want to disparage people that are working in politics i think you know that that would be me dichotomizing and doing the very same thing that i'm um, you know, hoping to work beyond that. I, I think, I think what you're allowing me or allowing us to do is say, you know, there's a different way, and that it can be challenging in some of our neural circuitry and some of the ways that um, can be habitual or part of our cultural systems, and you know, finding, you know, finding inclusion or you know, all of those type things. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think what you're saying those those two different sides being able to kind of draw them together and say, you know, there's a, there's a tension, but at the same time, it's something that it can also be collaborative that, you know, there's still amongst our divisions or even the divisions of the way our brains work, that there can still be a way uh, to draw different ways that our brains work, you know, together. So yeah. even like left brain or right brain that you know, some of the research coming out that, you know, that, you know, lateralization, it's still kind of new field, but the, as different as some of the research is showing is that they still work together as different yeah. as they are. That I mean, there's, there's so much that I think like learning from brain science, it can, they can teach us more about ourselves and even amongst those differences. So absolutely, no, I think those are, those are excellent points that that draws back to that. Um, I think the neuroscience is very inspiring. Absolutely. Mm, yeah. Well, well, I, I really appreciate your your perspective on that. Um, so, yeah. So another um, another area that kind of related to what we're talking about. You you recently, I think, had a video on the neuroscience of prejudice, and um, you you explained that it's the source of our prejudice is basically our, our beliefs. Sometimes they're unconscious. Uh, but it beliefs that we hold about other groups or, or stereotypes um, and that these lead us to make kind of false predictions and judgments about people um, who happen to be members of those groups. And so I was thinking we could discuss maybe a little bit of the neural circuitry involved in those processes and, and how we might encounter that in ourselves. And we can, we can speak generally, um, but like, for example, you stress the importance of gaining, you said this earlier, gaining access to our prefrontal cortex. And so why do you think that in particular is so important for avoiding prejudice? I mean, our prefrontal cortex, um, you know, our executive function, you mentioned, and then also, uh, you know, inhibitory um, aspects of our prefrontal cortex, but also like Newberg also talks about our frontal lobe being like the seat of our, our, our deepest concepts about ultimate reality, um, what many people would call God, that a lot of those concepts uh, about ourself as well, uh, that our, we have a ventromedial and a dorsomedial prefrontal cortex, um, and that our dorsomedial is more about our more abstracted self. Um, so, that, I mean, there are very many aspects about that, but how we understand, you know, our more immediate self 
what's in it for me, uh, what are rewards, but also understanding, you know, what, what are other people, uh, a theory of mind, who are other minds, mm. uh, part of that theory of mind is coming from your dorsal medial prefrontal cortex, but working in conjunction with other parts like your uh, temporal parietal junction. Um, so, I mean, there are many parts, but the prefrontal cortex, I think is very key to prejudice, um, semantic memory, partly being in our interior um, uh, temporal lobes. Uh, so there, there are a number of areas, but I think the prefrontal cortex, like you're saying, it's very uh, important to it. But largely, I think the inhibition, I think many of us, when we're starting to feel prejudice, our prefrontal cortex helps us say, no, at this moment, that's the wrong thing to say <laughs> or to do. And that inhibitory action of the prefrontal cortex says, no, this person may have, they have might exhibited prejudice toward me, um, but I'm going to not retaliate and seek revenge or, or whatever it is. Um, so there, there are many aspects to it, but I, I think what you're saying about the prefrontal cortex being a, a linchpin in terms of how, um, so how, how we understand ourselves in the world and relate to it and prefrontal cortex being toward our goals, uh, desires, um, our hopes for the future that, um, you know, if, especially if we can find uh, combined hopes for the future, if we think more with our prefrontal cortex, we can rise above, you know, the, you know, our habitualized patterns of aggression or revenge, and we can start thinking, you know, I don't necessarily agree with this person. However, I know that if, if we don't agree to disagree, we're, <laughs> we're heading to disaster. So absolutely, I think the prefrontal cortex is so central and us using our prefrontal cortex more um, and understanding it too. I think the more we understand about our brains, I think the more we realize our own limitations of our prejudice, but also can overcome that limitation. But absolutely like, I think a linchpin being the prefrontal cortex. Yeah, that's so interesting. And just a little point there on um, that you, you mentioned the, uh, the ability to kind of intervene in our habitual responses using our prefrontal cortices. And um, just to, to add a little fine point on that, there's this, there's these um, kind of anecdotes in the, the prefrontal cortex literature people who've had damage, I can't remember the exact subregion, but somewhere in the, the prefrontal cortex where they, they kind of lose that ability to um, change their, their habitual responses. So you'll, you'll find somebody, um, th there's a story of a man who goes into his, his, he's at his doctor's house for some reason. And uh, he just is in the bedroom, sees the bed and uh, immediately just um, undresses and gets in the bed. Like he's, you know, that's just his habitual response. When he sees a bed, he, he gets in it. So, um, but that, you know, that's a off the topic, but, but it, just drawing our attention to the, the fact of how crucial this brain region is and in, in changing our habitual responses. And if our habitual response is to see someone from a certain group, a certain racial group, uh, or, or whatever it is, religion, um, we might, and our habitual response is to write that person off or, or assign certain qualities to them that uh, they may or may not have, then our prefrontal cortex is going to be really important in, in changing our view of that person. Absolutely. Great. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, so I, 
I kind of want to uh, move on to some sort of bigger philosophical, maybe theological questions. Um, but before we do that, do you do you have anything else you want to say on particular uh, neurotheology or neuroscience topics in general? No, this has just been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, so yeah, the, thanks for the yeah, just the conversation. I hope it's a real real joy for your viewers. Oh, well, it's a, it's a joy for me, and I'm sure sure they'll get something out of it. Um, so, all right. So we've talked about what is spirituality. We've talked about the difference between that and religion. And I, I want to return to these definitional questions because um, I think you, you mentioned it a little bit before, but what do you, what is faith to you? In your view, is it is it necessary to have faith to live a good life or a good afterlife, perhaps? Um, what, how do you see faith? What is that to you? Well, that's a big one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think there's so many different ways to define it. I mean, like the Christian definitions and then kind of more secular or... Um, so yeah, I, I think a, a, a large point in terms of faith that I, I like to be a proponent of, and I think feel that I am, is that our, our faith is very, there's a practical side, a pragmatic side that is, it is very much enacted. What we believe, uh, what we feel, uh, what our hopes are, that that is an enormous part of, of what faith is, I think. Um, you know, there are different ways you could define faith. You know, it's, you know, our hopes, you know, believing in which that's not seen or, you know, I mean, there's, there's many different ways you could define faith, but I think a, a large piece of what I would, I would say in, in terms of the larger conversation is that faith is largely defined by a pragmatism and also a performance and how it's enacted. Hmm. I think something a number of Christians um, don't do is think about, you know, if, if we are to go to heaven, like if we're to go to another place, what are we going to do there? Like what, how will we live there? And one of the, one of my favorite commentary on the Lord's prayer uh, uh, and the, the Lord's prayer is one part is thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's not just to ask or pray or hope that God's will be done on earth is that we are, we are called to live in our faith, to enact our faith, to bring about God's kingdom of love and joy and peace. And definitely, I don't want to proselytize by any means, but just saying from a Christian perspective, I think there's a, there's a bit of a universality in that, you know, that how we live, I think we're, we're called to live our faith in terms of our ultimate reality that, you know, whatever we believe, I think we're drawn, not just to hold it in our minds, but it is an enacted, it is a pragmatic, uh, performed faith. And I think that is a very important piece for me as a Christian, my understanding of Christianity. But I think what I was saying about that question about, you know, what will we do in heaven? And if, if we go to heaven, I would think that we would, as, as a believer, I, I would think that we would follow God's will in heaven. We would, we would offer joy and love. And it's not merely pie in the sky. But if we were to go into the heaven and if I'm going to go to heaven and be a jerk, I would just make it hell. <laughs> so, you know, and, and why would, you know, why would God allow for a place for me to go and be a jerk <laughs> and it would just be hell. So I, I think the question of, 
you know, what is my faith, not only now, but in, as a person that believes in a world to come, how am I enacting my faith to live as if that place is also where I'm going to be doing what I'm supposed to be doing now. So I, I, think, I think a big piece of where I think neuroscience has a large, a large place to teach um, and, and Christians, but I think, I think all of us, it, you know, people, Muslims, uh, uh, Buddhists uh, in a next life to believe uh, and not to advocate, you know, you know, other religions or, but to affirm that all of us walking more deeply toward our enacted faith, that we can all help each other. I think find that common ground of find a more enacted faith, because I think the neuroscience has really told us is that, you know, whatever you believe that's, you know, if you just enclose that in your mind, that that is something that is, you know, highly to do with faith, but it's how that faith becomes enacted in the world. And that I think people of all different backgrounds, all different spiritual backgrounds, um, whether we agnostic or atheists, um, different forms of atheism, if we're, you know, Buddhists, if we're Hindu, if whatever it is that we can find common ground of enacting our, our performed faith in a way that's going to draw us all together and then make the world a better place. And the neuroscience, I think, shows that if our faith keeps us trapped in these silos that we just keep, you know, killing one another, or hating one another and not talking to one another, then, you know, our, our faith, we can't enact love in the same way. So, um, and, and I hope that wasn't proselytizing by any means. It's more, mm -hmm. I think the way I understand it, especially as a Christian, is to be accountable to my faith is if, if I am to believe something, it can't just be here. It has to be, you know, what am I really doing? And if I'm going to believe in a world to come, and I'm not actually doing that in this life, from what Jesus says, I'm going to be very accountable of that. He talks about the sheep and the goats that you're not even going to get in. I didn't even know you, Jesus says. And there's, there's some really pretty, you know, some dire things that, um, you know, there's some very deep philosophical questions there. And so the, I think the question of faith is one that's, it's a big question, but, um, and again, not to proselytize, but to really hold myself as a Christian more accountable but also to use the neuroscience to draw us more together. What is our enacted faith? How do we perform our faith? You know, we were talking about the prefrontal cortex. What are our deepest goals, our deepest desires? How do those draw us together in love and joy and kindness, forgiveness, all of these things? So I, I don't think I could give you a perfect answer of what faith is or what, and I don't want to proselytize what, you know, I've, I've chosen my answer, but, you know, everyone on this channel is going to have a different perspective. And um, you know, and, and just, you know, to find, find connection within that and, and love one another in that, um, there's so much richness there. And, and I think I can enact my faith even more so, uh, by doing that. So, yeah, I hope that wasn't a cop out, but no, it's not. No. And I just want to say, you know, I, I do, I am just genuinely interested in your, your answers. And I don't think, you know, I, I do appreciate your not trying to proselytize or anything, but also don't, you know, don't feel too constricted. I'd love to hear how, how you see it and, and what it means to you too. Um, so I guess drilling down a little bit on that point, I think a lot of atheists um, and myself in the past have kind of been uh, turned off by the term faith, because I think for a lot of us, it invokes this idea of um, belief uh, without evidence, essentially, and or, or without what what many would consider or what we might consider good evidence um you know depending on on the point but 
Um, how do you see that kind of definition? Do you think that's too simplistic of a definition? Um, yeah, I think yeah, it is like the Easter season for Christianity and, you know, blessed are those who believe without seeing. Mm. And there's, you know, that whole aspect within Christianity, but, um, you know, that there's certain things that challenge, you know, our prejudices and that we, we learn something new and people of faith, you know, often taking a leap of faith. And then, you know, some of, uh, there's a, uh, oh, I can't remember his name at the moment, but uh, Believing is Seeing is a new book out, uh, uh, Dr. G. Um, anyway, he, he talks about that we all have certain amounts of faith. Like, I think the best proximate answer for how much knowledge we have of, of the universe is maybe like 5%. And <laughs> even that, like dark matter or, dark energy we don't even know what they are we're just calling them that because we it's like i don't know what it is no one knows what it is they they, they can kind of see it with the math, mathematics and kind of how you know how different things function but you know there, there's there, i think there's a level of faith everywhere and that's and that's not to disparage um anyone of any particular faith that we, i think we all bring our prejudice our cultural background and i think as a person of faith my own prejudice that limits my understanding and knowledge of truth. And that there are things we're gonna disagree about, but you know, faith is like a pejorative, faith is, you know, you just don't have faith, you're you're an idiot or something terrible that, you know, just to you know draw us apart. That I, I think to a certain level we all have a perspective of faith that we're we're coming to, you know, there's there's solipsism and that, you know, no one has been able to definitively say that, you know, that no one's proved yet. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of evidence that, you know, all sides can, can draw on and present, but still even some of the best neuroscientists are saying, depending how you look on it and, and ones that are agnostic or even atheists, they, you still can't prove it. There's no definitive. So mm -hmm. no matter where we land, I think on the discussion of faith, we're, we're all kind of making a bit of a leap. Mm -hmm. And some of us would say, you know, I've looked at all this evidence and I see your evidence maybe here, or you know, not to disparage one another, but you know, I within maybe from an atheist perspective, they're saying I've seen all these things, and and no, I just can't, I can't, I can't go where you're going. Or the Christian might say, you know, whatever it is, or the Buddhist, or you know, so we're going to disagree on where the leap of faith is. But I, I think, mm. um, I think in terms of faith, considering how like incredibly ignorant we are about the universe, that we're all making you know, very, I think, profound leaps of faith every day. And that those leaps of faith are ones that draw us, you know, closer toward our own particular truths. But my hope would, would be that we can draw toward a more collective truth where we're all finding more truth, where as a Christian, when I, when I see something that might necessarily challenge my faith, I want to necessarily maybe, you know, have a leap of faith to say, you know, that wasn't necessarily that wasn't helpful or I can go to a new place and that new place might be, you know, a little bit farther, but I, I think, you know, maybe even a thousand years from now, or how, however, however far into the future, I'm, I, I would, I would put my chips that we're, we're probably never going to understand everything. I mean, maybe, I don't know, you know, who knows, there might be, you know, depending on the religious perspective or scientific or whatever, or the, you know, bring it all together. Um, it seems like, especially with the quantum mechanics, the more we know, the more weird it is. It just, <laughs> you know, like uh, quantum tunneling, quantum entanglement, uh, 
you know, how all of these things, it's, we, we feel like, oh yeah, we figured it out. And then there's this new thing and it's just totally baffling. So I think I would argue that all of us, no matter where our perspective is coming from, that there is some level of leap of faith and where we go with that leap of faith, I think depends on our, you know, our cultural background. It depends on, you know, our, you know, education, so many factors, but, um, and, and not to be judgmental, but that I, I would say that we all have a particular faith. It's, it's believing in that, which is not seen that, and, and it doesn't necessarily, just the idea of getting up in the morning, having faith that I'm not going to get hit by a meteorite or <laughs> that I'm not going to die or, you know, uh, those are very small possibilities, but um, just going out and not getting hit by a car or getting into a car. There's a certain level of faith, getting on an airplane, getting into a, you know, so, so many things there's, we're, we're being faithful all the time. Sometimes our brain, I think kind of shields us from, you know, having too much deliberation over, Oh my goodness. Am I, and then there's, you know, the, the mental health issues of some of us that have to, you know, deal with the uh, anxieties or, you know, so, uh, and a lot of those anxieties in our world are very real that it's hard to have faith when we see so much evidence saying, but the very fact that we can, in a world that, you know, we have this war going on now, we have the COVID pandemic, that we, that we choose life, that we choose to love one another, uh, despite our differences. I think there's a level of faith there mm. that um, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, the ultimate reality that, you know, there, there, there are things that, that I would say are faith. Um, anyway, so I, yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, and I, I think that's, that's a very like, like universalist definition that I, I could, I could probably get on board with too. Um, um, no, that, that's very interesting. Well, it, I think, um, we'll move on a little bit. We're, uh, we're getting somewhat close to our time, but, um, but, uh, one thing that I, you cover in one video is, um, your view of free will or how you see the issue of free will. Um, wh what is that? How do you, what's your take on free will? Wow. Well, you're just the big ones. <laughs> yeah. These are easy questions, no, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As if, uh, I mean, there's so much written on it. I, I find it so fascinating. Um, I'm one that does very much believe in free will. Um, but I mean, you have, especially coming from a medical side, work, working in you know multiple hospitals, seeing the ravages of you know, how we treat one another, uh, how things become habitualized. We talked about prejudice. Um, within the debate of free will, I don't necessarily want to get into all the you know, libertarian and the compatibilist and all the other stuff, uh, determinists. Um, but I mean, I'm one who does believe in free will. And I, I think for me, it's more a question of what we do. If, if we believe in free will, that some of the neuroscience that are, that are atheists are finding that when you tell people that they have free will, the, the survey or the research actually shows they have more free will. Even, even if you were to say they don't have free will, they're materialists, they're whatever it is that their brain function, that if you tell people they have free will in some of the research, and, and this is well-documented, they're, they're finding that people, when they believe in free will, they actually have more free will, even if, they, even if you were to think they don't have free will. So for me, it's less the question of, do we have free will, but more, where are you within your context? 
you know, each one of us has resources. Um, I think I, I may have talked about Cicero in terms of one of my videos that one of my favorite, favorite definitions of uh, freedom is participation and power, you know, and that I think what's most powerful in life is like love and joy and peace. And that if we can participate in these, these powers of love and joy and peace, the more we participate, and I had mentioned earlier about the social determinants of healthcare, that when you offer love and joy and peace and the power to in, engage in those things, you're gonna give people more freedom. And if you believe in more freedom, giving people more freedom in those things, they're gonna have more freedom. And that is the truth that they're seeing within neuroscience, regardless of whether or not you even have freedom. So I think the, the debate, I think a lot of people can get lost in the debate. And conclusively, no one's really, I don't think either side, even within the religious framework, you have like the compatibilists of like a middle knowledge or God's giving uh, a certain level of free will, but God knows what we'll choose. So God is, so even that is a number of people found that problematic. So within even the theological framework of it, it's still, I think many theologians are like, no, well, uh, <laughs> it's just, it's, it's not really, there's no definitive. It's, you know, without a, so yeah, exactly. So what I'm saying is that if you look at the neuroscience, a lot of what we're seeing is that if you believe in free will, you're going to have more free will. And if you want to offer others more freedom, which I would define as participation and power, you're going to en enable people to be more free. And that freedom, to me, has to be grounded in love and joy and peace and what I would call the fruit of the spirit, but valued in, in virtues and morality and uh, all of that type of, of freedom. And that as we see, like, you know, the, the, the effects of prejudice, the effects of hatred, the effects, and for ourselves included, like, you know, whether or not we're, whatever we, we believe the, the world to be, that if, if we can find forgiveness, we find a, for, a felt, for ourselves and others, you know, there's a certain unbinding mm -hmm. of what that was bound either toward our own sense of shame, maybe, or our own sense of, you know, sense of revenge that, you know, that we're the power to hate you know, that we're, we're lost. And I, I think to some degree that the argument, the argument itself, I think we get stuck. And that I think just taking what's beyond the argument is if we can say, hey, if we just believe in freedom, offering freedom, and then exercising it so that we can all kind of have more freedom, we're going to be more free, even if we're not free. And <laughs> I think that's what it boils down to me is that it almost doesn't, and obviously not, it doesn't matter but as we disagree, it almost matters more that we believe together in freedom than, than fighting about whether or not we are free and offering that freedom. So anyway, so uh, yeah, no, it's a great question. It's a really hard topic. Um, I love that you, you're asking me like, what is faith? <laughs> what is freedom? <laughs> you know, really getting into the, and uh, yeah, I'm sure your, your audience, these, I mean, these are our, our existential questions. Um, ones we hope to, I think, grapple with and, you know, provide more freedom for ourselves. I mean, neuroscience, I think, provides each of us more freedom. No, I mean, knowledge is power. The more we know about ourselves, the more we can offer others that knowledge and power and ennoble them uh, to be more free. So I, I think there's something very liberating about all of it. And your, your channel, I think, offers freedom to know more about, you know, who we are, what we are. Um, so no, I, these are great questions. And Wow. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, likewise. And, and I, I love your answer. It's 
Um, you know, for me, I, I come down on, I, I just, I sort of get convinced by this materialist argument, physicalist argument that um, ultimately there may not be such a thing as free will. But I also, I come back to your, your attitude with this is, is how I feel that does that, does that really matter? Because as you mentioned, some of those studies seem to suggest that believing in free will, we, we maybe have more ability to make decisions about our lives. And, and I always remember the story about uh, William James, the, like the father of American psychology, um, who, you know, had this, he did this little experiment on himself because he was grappling with this question. And he said, okay, well, I don't, I don't remember how long the time period was, but he said, for, for this certain amount of time, I'm just going to believe that every single choice I make, every decision is my own and that I, I'm in control of my, my fate. And he said that was one of the most transformative experiences he ever had in his life. Mm -hmm. And I think he, he did believe in free will, um, but, but sort of along similar lines that, that you were suggesting. I'd have to look back at it exactly, but it was basically that point. And similarly, I, last week I talked with um, uh, actually another uh, YouTube guy, Ryan Rhodes. He, he's a uh, cognitive scientist and we came down, he came on a, a different perspective, but we came to basically the same conclusion. And uh, I think, you know, I, I think you could argue with it. You could say, well, it's not fully consistent. And, and I, I might have to agree that, our, you know, our logic may be not fully consistent, but I, that, that's where I land with it too, is, well, it seems to be a useful concept in my life. I mean, and, and in other people's lives, when we believe that we're free, it seems to make a difference. So, so why not, you know, have that belief? And maybe that's a kind of faith that I, that I engage in. Um, sure. So, okay. So we've, we've talked about some little questions like faith and free will. And um, let's, uh, I, I think you, you've probably answered this uh, through speaking about the fruit of the spirit, but I just want to get, pin it down. I mean, what do you think is the single most important value or quality of mind that we should try to cultivate in our lives, whether that's through a spiritual practice like meditation or prayer, or simply, um, you know, trying to change yourself in some way? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that would come to mind would just be being more mindful, um, overcoming our habitual patterns. Um, I had mentioned that definition, uh, Jeffrey Schwartz, uh, one of my favorite authors, he, uh, he defines mindfulness as having a third person perspective of your first person experience. So the more we can kind of go to the balcony and look at ourselves, I think the more we cultivate that, I think the, the farther away we can get from living in our habitual patterns, our own prejudice, um, that if we can get beyond just living out an unconscious existence, uh, that we can have more freedom. And that if we can, and that mindfulness, I think to some degree, you know, is informed by a higher sense that that third person perspective is, I talked about the dorsal medial prefrontal cortex that uh, our more abstracted sense of ourselves, um, you know, different traditions would define it differently, you know, that someone Jewish might find it as this still small voice of God, or you could define it as our, our conscious, um, our inner light, our inner compass. But the more mindful we become, the more we start using that prefrontal cortex, you know, inhibiting more of our, um, you know, quick, automatic, unconscious habits, 
So being mindful, I think drawing us more of that abstracted sense of kind of a decentering our our like self, maybe a small s, or you know, there are different ways of describing it. But you know, getting to that large sense of self of and within more of a like a secular atheist uh, perspective that you know, if I can think of you know what will future generations think of me, that abstracted sense of self, what will my life mean mm. a thousand years from now, a hundred years from now? And having that mindfulness of kind of detaching from that real, you know, nitty gritty, reactive, all that other stuff to a more, you know, what, what is my wiser self, my wiser advocate of my mind, um, even thinking of myself 20 years from now or 10 years, mm. or even five years from now, what would that self think of me and getting to that point more often? And then, as you're saying, like the prefrontal cortex being, you know, so important in all of this, if we can use our, our higher ability to think about ourselves, get out of those, you know, those habitual patterns, largely that are based on confrontation or, or sense of revenge or habitual or, or so much of that. And I, I think people of all faiths, all backgrounds, uh, spiritualities, um, wherever it's coming from that, that cultivating those parts of the brain, um, having a, a greater sense of a theory of mind, I talked about earlier that the more we I think the more we have a sense of the other, um, the more we have, you know, we're we're able to project, you know, what is this person thinking? We're able to empathize more. So yeah, being more mindful, I think to like just as one term, one idea, mm. there are a lot of different facets, I think, to it. Um, but I, I think all of us can get to, a, I think, a better place of cooperation and being less reactive and I mean, even if we disagree on what mindfulness is, where, you know, what's the source of that mindfulness? Is it a gift of the Holy Spirit? Is it um, within Buddhism, a mindful awareness? Is it um, my evolutionary biology that, you know, pro-social behaviors gave me this ability to, you know, project and understand the other, um, whatever your source is, and, you know, not everyone's going to agree upon this, but I, I think largely coming from that, from a, from a chaplain, but also as a priest that, you know, that we are to we are to love one another. And to me, that that is to transcend all of these these more base reactionary pieces of ourself and get to a higher level of saying, you know, I might just I didn't I, I might disagree with this person, maybe like very fundamentally. I might not even like this person somehow, but I, I can love them. I can agree with I can I find something that I can agree with them on and we can work together to a shared sense of reality. And but it's only I think with mindfulness that we're gonna get there, no matter what our background is. So mm -hmm. these are great questions, Andrew. I'm really having fun. I, I'm, I'm glad you're, I hope the comments, uh, what other people, they're, what they're thinking about these things and where they draw their, you yeah. know, what, what is the one thing for them too? What is the one thing that draws them um, into a sense of, you know, that maybe that one thing? Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. I'd love to hear that in the comments. Uh, what, what's the most important value or quality of mind? And um, no, I think your answer is uh, beautiful. I mean, I, I really agree with it. Um, well, the the uh, the last question I have is, if somebody could read only one book about, I mean, take your pick, whether brain, spirituality, uh, however, if someone and uh, this it, maybe we'll we'll take it out of uh, the realm of religion. Um, but if, if somebody could read only one book about, let's say, the brain or neuro, neurotheology, what would you recommend? Oh, that's a toughie. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, there's so many good books and within genres. I mean, for people of a particular faith background, I would recommend a particular book over another. Um, yeah, if I had to choose one, that's just, that's really hard. I mean, because I mean, they all teach something different. I mean, I, w I wouldn't want to just say read my book because, you know, it's, I mean, it's very that, much a Christian. That's allowed. <laughs> <laughs> and I, and then all the proceeds of my book go to, uh, go to the children's hospital where I used to work. So, uh, and there's nothing about mine that if you're looking, if, if you allow this, I'd say, if you want a Christian perspective, I'll say, read my book. But if you were to read any other book, I would say probably read Andrew Newberg. Um, and a, I'm, I'm totally violating your question, but as, as a, as another, if you want maybe a more, no, I would say read, I mean, Neurotheology by Newberg, if, if you want, that's one of his more later uh, books, kind of describing the genre. Um, it's only two or three years old, and he's kind of saying, you know, what are some of the, but one of the ones that I first read, uh, How God Changes Your Brain, I think I would also, um, I would say read, if you want a really Christian, maybe read my book, um, but if you want something more interfaith, kind of draw it together, even a secular um, and then that's what I think is really beautiful about uh, Dr. Newberg is that, you know, that, that it, it's not pushing anyone out that, you know, it's drawing us all together that, you know, regardless of how we disagree on some very fundamental things that there are some things that they're learning through neuroscience. So I would say one of those two by him. Um, so I kind of cheated, but uh, yeah. hopefully. No, that that's too. great. That's great. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, I think he, he does uh, tend to bring people together and I think he had some hand in bringing us together some indirect way uh, yeah. today. So Brian, it's, it's been a real pleasure and wonderful speaking Likewise. with you. I, I hope we can do it again in the future. And um, thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. And really appreciate the time together. Appreciate the, the, the tough questions just going right, right down into it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how we do it. Well, thank, thanks so much. Okay. Um, Take good care. You too. All right, well, that's it. Thank you so much for listening to or watching this episode of Sense of Mind. Please be sure to like and subscribe to the YouTube channel and subscribe to the podcast. Also consider giving this show a five-star rating on whatever, on whatever podcast platform you use. Also consider signing up for our newsletter by going to senseofmindshow.com slash newsletter. As always, this channel is brought to you by the Diamond Mind Foundation. This episode was written and produced by me, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Thank you so much for watching. I'll catch you next time.